You're listening to the Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of Corbett Report Radio here on the Republic Broadcasting Network at republicbroadcasting.org. And I am your host for the next hour of radio transmission, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, broadcasting to you tonight, as every night, from my sunny palatial home studios here in the sunny climes of western japan thank you all for tuning in for tonight's edition of the broadcast and for anyone out there who hasn't seen it yet i've just posted up the latest edition of my podcast to corbettreport.com so you can go there to download that podcast or you can watch the video version on youtube or blip or right there on corbettreport.com and I would, uh, well, I would suggest you do so because I think it's a particularly important podcast episode on a particularly important subject, namely that of 3D printing, a very, very fascinating technology that I think has the potential to be a revolutionary, game-changing type of technology that once again works towards decentralization of power and putting more power into the hands of individual citizens and I think that's a very exciting trend that bodes well for the future if we can really understand and utilize this technology to its full potential. But that is a subject for the future. And tonight on the program, well, it's December 18th, 2012. That means that 2012 is getting long in the tooth and is about to expire. So tonight on the program, we're actually going to be looking back at 2012, the year that was... And it was quite a year, no matter which way you slice it, whether you're looking at the economic fallout of everything that's going on, whether you're looking at, well, literal fallout from somewhere like Fukushima, whether you're looking at the geopolitical or the political maneuverings, of course, the two, uh, two, uh, horse, dog and pony show that's, uh, that was the 2012 election, or you have all of the geopolitical things happening all around the world. It was an active year on many different fronts. And, of course, the turning of the calendar is in many ways just an arbitrary thing, and it doesn't have much significance in and of itself, unless you're a proponent of the December 21st uh, myths, which uh, I certainly am not, but we will be talking a little bit more about that on the program tomorrow night as we look ahead to 2013. But tonight on the program, we're going to be using this arbitrary changing of the calendar for a little bit of retrospection looking back at the year that was and thinking about really what this really uh, says about what where the world has been and where it's going. And uh, we're going to be getting, in, of course, into those big subjects after this coming break. But just uh, let me take this couple of minutes here just to be a little bit more personal. Of course, 2012 was a, well, a, a very, very important year in a number of respects. And, of course, one of them that we have to take into account is the unfortunate passing of one of the titans of the resistance. Of course, I'm referring to Bob Chapman, who was a regular weekly guest on CorbettReport.com for the preceding couple of years, and a good friend behind the scenes to myself, someone who was really kind of a mentor, and as I say, helped not only to get me this radio program in the first place, but really to, uh, to help me in so many different ways, and someone whose passing, I think, has probably touched a lot of people out there. I, I certainly received a lot of email to that effect. So that was, of course, one of the one of the uh, sadder moments of 2012. And at the very least, we can celebrate a life well-lived and a life lived in service to others and in resistance to the New World Order. So I think 
we have to look up to Bob Chapman as an example of what we can be in the future. And with that sad moment in 2012, there was also a moment of great joy in my own personal life here in Japan in 2012. And I haven't announced this on air to my, to, uh, at least on my program yet, but at any rate, I should probably let people out there know that my wife and I are expecting our first child. We will be welcoming our first child into this world next year in May. So I am very, very much looking forward to that. And I can't tell you how overjoyed I am. And of course, it's a huge responsibility, and it's not one I'm going to take lightly, but I am so happy to be in this position of being able to guide a new life into the world and hopefully make this world a little bit of a better place for it. So that's uh, quite a roller coaster of a year for myself personally, and I'm sure for many people out there. Let's take a short break, and after the break, we'll be back to look back at some of the issues and stories that changed the world in 2012. friends we're back we're back here on corbett report radio once again james corbett of corbettreport.com coming to you tonight uh, uh, once again as always from japan and tonight we're going to be taking a look at the year that was we're going to be listening to some clips and talking about some of the stories that made 2012 well one for the record books at any rate and unfortunately that's not always in a positive sense although there were i think bright spots and positive things to note along the way there were of course some well well just horrible things that happened as well there's no other way to to put it and one of them that happened well very early in the new year in fact in the early dawn hours of new year's day or perhaps it was the waning hours of new year's eve in 2011 so this might be fudging a little bit but sometime in that time window we had the chief teleprompter uh, lord lord and savior obama himself signing the national defense authorization act for fiscal 2012 into law and, of course, this is the NDAA, which is signed every single year into law and which provides the budget for the Department of Defense. But the NDAA 2012 was, well, interesting because of the provision that it contained for indefinite detention of U.S. citizens anywhere in the world, including on U.S. soil, for basically any reason whatsoever, with no recourse whatsoever to actually question that detention. Basically, this is the absolute scrapping of the very foundations of Western jurisprudence that have been built up since the Magna Carta and represents one of the most, well, horrible and reprehensible things that happened in uh, in recent memory when you start to really think about the, the scope of what happened in that one fell swoop of Obama's pen. But unfortunately, it happened, and amazingly enough, well, it did create quite a bit of talk in the alternative media, at least for the first month or two of 2012, but as most of these stories do, it tends to fade away, because out of sight, out of mind. So in order to bring it back into sight and into mind, I've got a clip here from a GRTV video that I made about this NDAA. It's called The NDAA, Just One More Link in the Chain of Tyranny, and it was created back in early January of 2012. So let's listen to this clip and refresh our memory about the National Defense Authorization Act of 2012. Each year, the United States Department of Defense's budget and expenditures are approved by Congress, which must pass a National Defense Authorization Act 
in order to fund the DOD. The most recent bill, however, the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2012, shocked many by containing an extraordinary provision allowing for the indefinite detention without trial of anyone even suspected of providing support to individuals or groups identified as terrorists. Although this represents little change from the U.S. government's modus operandi in waging the so-called global war on terror, many were amazed to discover that this provision specifically applies to American citizens who can now be detained by American military personnel anywhere in the world, including on U.S. soil, and held indefinitely without trial. Perhaps it is not surprising that President Obama chose New Year's Eve as the date to sign the NDAA, as the revelry of the holiday predictably distracted Americans from the event. Particularly remarkable is the fact that this legislation has been almost universally identified as an overt act of tyranny by commentators of all political stripes, perhaps most importantly from sources that have traditionally defended the actions of Obama and his administration. The ACLU said that Mr. Obama's decision to sign the National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA, including the controversial detainee provisions, would tarnish his presidency. Quote, President Obama's action is a blight on his legacy because he will forever be known as the president who signed indefinite detention without charge or trial into law. I will choose in my administration not to indefinitely detain U.S. citizens meaning another administration can choose to do so, meaning that the bill says, yes, the president has the authority and the option of detaining U.S. citizens without a trial indefinitely. This is definitive. And it's not just my interpretation. It's not just Glenn Greenwald's interpretation. As we told you yesterday, the team of lawyers at the ACLU, whose job it is to protect our civil liberties, says that is definitely the correct interpretation, and it is hideous. Now, today, more people piling on. My understanding is that when Carl Levin thought, the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, thought in the Senate that the provision for it being applicable to American citizens on American soil was stripped out, the White House had it put back in, which is just dumber than mud. I can't understand how we'd want to go back to Reconstruction days. I mean, that's the last time we destroyed Posse Comitatus. But this is the White House that thinks that it's okay uh, to assassinate U.S. citizens abroad without new due process in the case that, of Anwar al -Awlaki. So why true. wouldn't they want that in? Because this is true. codifying powers that they've already determined they have. That's very true. Now, on the heels of the NDAA, a new bill is making its way through Congress the Enemy Expatriation Act, which would make the controversy about the NDAA null and void by simply stripping Americans of their American citizenship should they be accused of associating with government-deemed terrorist organizations. The bipartisan legislation I introduced this week calls for a pragmatic recognition that a person who is purposefully and materially supporting acts of terror against the United States is demonstrating that they have no intent in acting as a U.S. citizen. Congressman, so to be clear, this is not for people suspected, obviously, that civil liberties still exist in this country. It's only upon yes. one's conviction that they would lose their citizenship. They'd likely be spending a lot of time behind bars as well. Well, there would have to be a complete investigation. There's a standard of you know, clear and convincing evidence. But in the case of Mr. Alawaki in Yemen, he has made public statements that have been hostile to this country. He has participated in operational aspects of terror attacks on this country, involved with Major Hassan. Now, we may never get to a trial with him. He's operating overseas. But there would be an investigation conducted by the State Department to determine this individual is an enemy combatant, a belligerent, and that would be the standard. 
All right, that's the beginning of that video. So once again, you can go and follow the link from the show notes for tonight's episode at CorbettReport.com to find that full video and to continue watching where we talk to Stuart Rhodes of Oath Keepers and others about what this NDAA really means. But I don't think uh, we have to use our imagination too much to understand just what an undermining of the basic principles of liberty that the United States was founded on this NDAA really represents. And it is a sad state of affairs that, unfortunately, the American public has more or less even forgotten that this this has been signed into law, that this has passed. There hasn't been a lot of follow-up in this with the mainstream media or the alternative media even about these types of world-changing events and things that truly are of historical importance. But, uh, again, they can get very quickly put down the memory hole just because, once again, out of sight, out of mind. And a couple of things that we can pick up from that report that we just listened to, one of them being that, well, it's interesting that this was signed into law on New Year's Eve, specifically, obviously, to avoid the type of bad press that it could have conceivably garnered even amongst uh, Obama's erstwhile supporters in the left liberal progressive establishment media. And so you even heard the Young Turks and others trying to call out Obama on this when it was actually signed into law that, of course, did not stop them from cheerleading for Harry Obama back in, uh, 20, in the 2012 election, because, of course, once again, it's the lesser of two evils, or so they want you to believe at all possible opportunities. But it's interesting to see how they manipulate the news cycle like that and play th- things off uh, in, in wee hours of the night on um, the days where basically it's almost guaranteed to get zero news coverage. And I think we'd have to be naive to think that that isn't part of the agenda. But uh, another interesting thing, development from this story that we were covering, for example, on the New World Next Week. So you can turn to the February 23rd, 2012 edition of New World Next Week for a story that we covered. Virginia nullifies NDAA, which we got from an RT story from the 22nd of February, 2012. Virginia votes to refuse NDAA. And this is talking about how the Virginia lawmakers passed an, a bill, uh, HB 1160, by an impressive 96 to 4 margin, which barred state officials from abiding by the indefinite detention provisions of the NDAA 2012. So it was a nullification of sorts enacted at the state level. And that is, of course, a hopeful sign because at, as the federal tyranny increases, people's understanding of why it's important to have these separate levels of government pitted against each other once again starts to rise. And of course, as someone who is a voluntarist, I don't think that government should have any role in our lives, but at the very least, a system where power is pitted against itself and theoretically can be used to block these types of federal tyrannical moves is something that people have to at least come to an understanding of and a better historical perspective on. So earlier this year, we also talked to Tom Woods about nullification and the concept and how states' rights is an important issue. And, of course, we've also seen the attendant rise in that label, Tenther. Oh, if you talk about the Tenth Amendment and states' rights and nullification and these other things, you're one of these crazy people that is uh, racist and wants to go back to segregation and all of these things and whatever canard they'll pull out of their hat to try to make this work. Of course, it has nothing to do with that, but, you know, that's just the way this political game plays out. But uh, I, I also think that this type of spirit of independence and states' rights and nullification unfortunately also gets 
put into a blender with things like this recent uh, secessionist idea that sprung up through these petitions on the We the People White House website, where we've seen recently the uh, tens of thousands of people in each state and and sometimes uh, enough to actually uh, merit an official response from the White House in, in at least eight states has gotten behind this idea of, well, we should secede from the Union because Obama's been elected. And, of course, that puts it into this left-right canard, which is meant to distract people and get them talking about f- political football issues. But, again, that can be used to, tarner, tar, to tar and feather, basically, the entire uh, idea of states' rights, nullification, secession. All of these ideas can be just rolled up into one big ball of crazies, quote-unquote, and uh, they can try to dismiss it all in one fell blow. Well, a lot to talk about. Uh, when we come back from the break, we're going to be listening to another New World next week, this time from March of 2012, and another story that you may have forgotten about that was dominating headlines 24-7 at the beginning of this year, and that's Kony, Joseph Kony in Uganda. You remember that hype? Well, we'll de- deconstruct that hype and what the real agenda behind it was on the other side of this break. We will begin with a story from the National Post, but like probably millions of other people out there, I first heard about it this very morning on FaceSpace and Jitter and all the social network holes. Joseph Coney viral video campaign clouded in controversy. A documentary film aimed at exposing the heinous acts of Ugandan war criminal Joseph Coney, and that's K-O-N-Y, exploded over the Internet Wednesday, drawing praise and condemnation from the millions who viewed it. The half-hour film, Coney 2012, made by the U.S. organization Invisible Children, tells the story of a child soldier named Jacob and the charity's push to have the U.S. intervene to stop the LRA. That would be the Lord's Resistance Army. The campaign is kicked off just as the LRA, a cultish militia led by Coney that has terrorized parts of Africa for decades, launched a new spate of attacks in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Millions of Twitter users use the hashtag StopConey, vying for the top trending spot among other popular topics today like the iPad 3 and football players like Peyton Manning. Dear Joseph Coney, I'm going to help make you famous hip-hop icon P. Diddy, and there were other folks, Bieber and Rihanna and all your favorites in the Papa Culture Kingdom, spreading the word, hopping on the bandwagon, as, as so many folks do. But continuing... The film's narrator, Jason Russell, explains how U.S. advisors to Uganda could train government forces in the technology needed to hunt down Mr. Coney in the jungle. Last October, U.S. President Barack Obama agreed to send 100 troops. But the campaign has been met with suspicion and condemnation with some critics denouncing the push to hunt down Coney as irresponsible and immoral. Quote, the immediate question is whether Coney is captured or killed, end quote, wrote Ph.D. student Jack McDonald from King's College, London, that while he supports the desire to raise the profile, as so many folks do and would, of the heinous nature of Coney's crimes, considering this whole kind of viral marketing campaign dangerous, the idea that popular opinion can be leveraged with viral marketing to induce foreign military intervention is really, really dangerous. 
It is immoral to try and sell a sanitized version of foreign intervention that neglects the fact that people will die as a result. That goes for politicians as much as Jason Russell. Invisible children did not respond to a request for comment, as, of course, they are no doubt deluged with all of this going on. James, before I throw it back to you, this this really kind of struck on something I've kind of seen woven throughout many of the other stories playing out on the on the geopolitical stage right now. And for me, it kind of seems to be part and parcel with the, the finalization of turning the well-meaning progressive Democratic left, the complete capitulation and, and just turning into calling for the bloodlust. Yay, we killed Osama. You know, yay, Andrew Breitbart's dead, which, by the way, I'm waiting for the videos he was going to put out. And, you know, yay, we're sending threatening messages to Limbaugh and, and all of these things. We love it when our cool blue singing president brings on the, the terror, just like the other cool saxophone player that, you know, burnt, burnt down that evil church in the 90s. But Kucinich also lost his seat yesterday in Ohio, which I see as another kind of signpost that ultimately people are selling their souls over to this new world order. James? Well, that's exactly the point, isn't it? That's exactly right, because it's always endlessly fascinating to me to watch how literally millions upon millions of people who probably don't, couldn't, can't even place Uganda on a map uh, and who had never heard of, of this guy, Kony, before, last, you know, last, literally one week ago, had never even heard of this, now find this to be, you know, this is the pressing political issue. And millions upon millions of people could be led into this by, you know, the tweets of P. Diddy and Kim Kardashian and people like this into, into thinking this is a pressing political issue right now, although this is something that's been going on for, you know, 20 years and it, it involves all this backstory and everything. And, uh, and never think to question why this is being put in front of them right now and whether this actually serves the interests of the, uh, the, the foreign interventionists and the military-industrial complex and all of these people, the war profiteers and the people who want a justification for increasing American and Western intervention in Africa and the, uh, the further establishment of AFRICOM and all of these, these grand political ideas that this plays into. And, of course, they can deflect any criticism of that by saying, oh, well, if, if you're not for for getting Coney, then you're you're for child torture and kidnap, uh, and just simplistic arguments like that. Oh, if you're not for the police looking at all of your ISP activity, you're for the child pornographers. It's it's the moral equivalent of that type of argument. So um, so it's 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 fascinating to watch this and how this becomes the celeb flavor of the week, like uh, like the Darfur genocide uh, campaign a few years ago, and now that South Sudan has been created and there's the Western toehold in in that area, so that they can get their hands on the oil, suddenly no one cares about Darfur anymore, and I guarantee you in a few years no one will care about Kony anymore, or the fact that he hasn't even been in Uganda for the last six years, but let's not complicate people with the actual facts of the situation, what's actually going on, let's just try to simplify it all into this tiny little, you know, Kony 2012 catchphrase that can be tweeted out without any substance, without anyone knowing what's going on, but will provide the justification for what's going to be the next stage of intervention, and when they can't get Kony, oh, well, we'll have to send in the drones, we'll have to send in the SEALs, we'll have to increase American presence in the region. And it's just, uh, it's just all part of this, this cycle, this spin cycle that, uh, that just justifies more and more intervention. And exactly as you indicate, the left can get on board. Yay, this is bombing people that we can get behind. Yay, go Team America. And 
James, I, I think ultimately just to wrap all this up, it's it's so much effort spent on something that, again, I'm not saying is not important, but ultimately, what about all the dead kids and the bastards in your own neighborhoods, in your town where you live? You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. I'm sick of this damn noise, the paranoid android Poised at the edge of the precipice Sanity is gradually becoming my nemesis Like Glenn Beck was my therapist Yes, it sounds perilous Governments and terrorists Evidently similar, we've all got our enemies Powers leave you penniless, selling the shore Welcome back to the program, friends. Once again, this is Corbett Report Radio on Republic Broadcasting. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Just before the break in the last segment there, we were listening to a New World Next Week uh, program that aired in March, talking about the Coney 2012 phenomenon that took the social media world by storm at any rate back in the early part of March of this year. And, well, it was an interesting phenomenon, and in some ways, I think it was a uh, PSYOP experiment. And that doesn't necessarily mean, although it turned out there were ties between the State Department and the group that put out that video, etc., but that doesn't necessarily mean that it was all planned out ahead of time to be that type of PSYOP. But one would have to be naive at the very, very least to assume that there were... The, uh, the powers that shouldn't be weren't looking in, uh, with great interest at what happened with Coney 2012 and how literally millions upon millions of people could be mobilized around an issue, the existence of which they literally did not know about the week before because of a viral video campaign, a viral social media campaign, just getting people stirred up into a frenzy about something that literally they had no idea about before. And, well, who, who cares about Uganda anymore? It was just the flavor of the week. So that's an interesting phenomenon that uh, I'm sure the powers that shouldn't be are going to be flirting with and playing with in the years ahead. So that's something to look at for the future. But tonight we're looking at the past. We're looking at the year that was. We're looking at important things that happened in 2012. So we've touched on a couple of things, the NDAA and the Coney 2012 phenomenon. Let's take a look at some geopolitical issues that have been very important over the past year. And Of course, I'm talking about the continuing destruction of Syria and the continuing destabilization of Syria. Uh, it's been one hell of a year for the Syrians, and of course that's not a good thing, but uh, it's amazing in some respects that this is still going on almost two years after this whole foreign-funded and foreign-started insurrections against the Assad government started. And we've seen a lot of different points in the year where different so-called turning points have supposedly taken place. We've seen the, the hype, for example, around the uh, the Hula massacre, quote-unquote, and the way that that was misreported by the BBC and other institutions. Surprise, surprise. Another important turning point was the battle for Aleppo, which took place this summer, and Aleppo being an important and com- commercial capital in, in Syria, and one that the Syrian rebels attempted to take from the Syrian government earlier this year. So we can take some of this story from something like the New York Times, July 26, 2012, Syrians flee Aleppo as opposing forces take position, where they reported, the Syrian military shelled rebel targets in urban enclaves on Thursday as it readied assault troops and armored columns for a possible invasion of Aleppo, Syria's densely populated commercial capital, where insurgents have embedded themselves over the past week in preparation for a battle. Anti-government activists reached by phone and Skype in Aleppo said that the city's civilian population was gripped by foreboding as government forces massed on the southern outskirts 
and that fierce street clashes had sporadically erupted. But Syrian military commanders appeared to be awaiting reinforcements before issuing invasion orders. And it was in the context of this battle for Aleppo that we had on Corbett Report Radio in August, Syrian Girl, a.k.a. Syrian Girl Partisan on YouTube, the uh, the anonymous Syrian national who uh, gives commentary on the situation in Syria. We had her on the program to talk about this battle for Aleppo and basically what was happening in Syria generally. So let's take a listen to a clip from that program that aired on August 1st of this year. But uh, let's let's get straight off the the top here, straight into the latest developments and what's happening right now. Obviously, the battle in Aleppo taking um, front and center stage in terms of the coverage right now about what's going on in Syria. What can you tell us as a little background about Aleppo and uh, where it's where it really stands in all of this uh, fighting? Well, Aleppo is the most heavily populated city in Syria, even though it's not the capital. Um, it's also a very very old city, and it's got you know, um, all of the religions and sects are living together. So you have uh, Christians, Alawites, and Sunnis, uh, and, um, you know, m- millions of people. And from the beginning, it was, as you said, uh, one of the most anti-conspiracy, um, anti-insurgency cities, and had the biggest rallies that were against the insurgency. So uh, they... All right, looks like we're having some problems with that audio, but we'll get it back to you as soon as we can. But there is Syrian Girl talking about what was happening in Aleppo there earlier this year as the fighting started to heat up there. And, of course, what the mainstream media wanted you to focus on was the idea that, well, this is the Syrian army that's cracking down on all of these people who who were fighting back against the government and... Well, bizarrely enough, yeah, of course, it was exactly 180 degrees opposite to what they were attempting to portray. It was, in fact, the rebels that had come in and tried to take the city, so that any violence that happened, the mainstream media could then try to blame on the Syrian government, because they were the ones fighting against the rebels who were fighting against them. So it's all smoke and mirrors, and I don't think that's much of a surprise to anyone who's uh, been listening to basically anything that's been coming out of Syria for the past year. And here's a story that amazingly didn't get much traction in the New York Times or other so-called, quote-unquote, papers of record. There's one from uh, RT, which was published on the 1st of August, 2012. War crime, question mark? Syrian rebels execute POWs. Well, uh, absolutely horrifying. And uh, if you want, you can go and take a look at the video that they have posted up there talking about what was happening in Aleppo at that time, and uh, again, the rebels committing just monstrous uh, acts of war crimes that unfortunately, of course, never get reported on in the reporting on the subject. It's always talking about Assad. And of course, again, I'm not Assad's friend, and I am not here to uh, to basically prop up his regime, but I am saying that there's a massive, massive, massive amount of misreporting on this issue. I understand the clip is ready to go, so let's let's continue with Syrian girl talking about the Battle of Aleppo. To make Aleppo their kind of Benghazi, um, uh, how do you say, as it as it was in Libya, like a stronghold. Um, what can I tell you? They are coming in from outside Aleppo. Uh, some of them have had uh, cells within the city where. They um, rent houses or they kick people out of their house and they occupy 
the apartments and they use that as a base of operations. But for the most part, um, they're coming in uh, to the rural areas around Aleppo, and that's where most of the skirmishes are happening. Right, because if you're reading the, the mainstream coverage of this, it would seem as if this was the, 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 the heart of the rebel uprising or something, and it's some sort of spontaneous thing. But uh, again, if you read into the, the history of this, even the way it was being covered in these same publications several months ago, they were saying this is, this is where the government supporters are to the large, to a large extent. So, so you can confirm that basically this is people from outside of Aleppo who are basically trying to infiltrate the city in order to uh, swing it around towards the, the rebellion. That is absolutely, absolutely the truth. Um, you could easily tell that because the bath has been moving. You know, it, it's not uh, been... Uh, the insurgency can track their movements and they have been moving to where the battle is. And right now, uh, where the battle is is Aleppo, so they've been uh, flooding into there. And it's not just from all around Syria, it's also from all around the Middle East. Uh, even CNN recently reported that more Libyans are being sent in to Syria. And if you watch uh, Syria Tube, you can see that a lot of the insurgents have uh, the Libyan camels that uh, were left over uh, when the Americans gave them the desert petites. So um, that's, what, that's what Aleppo is facing. It's facing an attack by foreigners. It's not facing a grassroots uprising, as they're trying to portray Exactly. So that's interesting because if they can frame it as if this was something that was happening within the city spontaneously, then any violence that happens there must be the result of a government crackdown. Whereas in reality, it's the exact opposite. The violence that's happening there is because the rebels are trying to infiltrate and to start violence in the city. That's exactly it. And I think it's to try to uh, grab on to the idea that uh, Syria is spiraling down and... um, the government is, is, is just about to fall, and even now the major cities are being attacked. But the fact is, I think that uh, even though for the, for the, in a few weeks we might see a lot of losses for the government side, at the end of it, they're going to fail just as they did in Damascus, just as they did in Homs. And uh, it's, it's premature, but it's, it's coming to head, and I don't know what strategy uh, the NATO powers are going to employ as they get more and more desperate as it becomes more obvious that uh, their insurgency is failing. All right, friends, sorry about that mix-up. That was all my fault. There was no problem with the clip. It was just a technical issue on my end. Well, I've only been radio broadcasting for about 14 months now. You, yeah, yeah, It's just too newfangled for me. At any rate, there you go. Syrian girl talking about the battle for Aleppo. And we mentioned some of the fallout from that battle that was not reported including the war crimes committed by the rebels so let's uh let's move on to some other issues that uh, attempted to um that attempted to uh make its way into our consciousness in 2012 one way or another and of course uh we've talked about some important military and and geopolitical issues well how about economic issues our financial livelihoods in hanging in the balance basically on the uh, whims at, of the globalists, banksters, who are unfortunately puppeteering the system into place for either the big collapse or the controlled collapse or the easy letdown or whatever they're going to try to do to try to transition us into the world global economy. 
And, uh, well, things are proceeding apace this year, as we saw, well, not, not only QE2 coming along and Operation Twist and all of that from the uh, years past, but, of course, we saw QE3 launched in September at the exact same time as Mario Draghi decided to launch his ECB bazooka into the markets in Europe, and we saw all sorts of quantitative easing taking place all around the globe at virtually the same time. And it was in that context that in September of this year, I talked to David L. Smith, a.k.a. the Geneva Business Insider, about the quantitative easing madness that was gripping the world at that time and unfortunately seems to be set to only grip us even further in 2013. So let's turn back to this interview. Once again, it's on CorbettReport.com, and it will be linked up in the show notes for tonight's episode, so you can find the link and listen to the full interview. But let's just listen to a clip of David L. Smith talking about the QE madness from September of this year. Okay, well, let's let's talk about uh, what, what was happening on the other side of the pond, of course, with Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke also uh, announcing a huge new round of quantitative easing, which was already priced in. Everyone was already expecting it, a $40 billion a month mortgage-backed security buyout program that is really only going to serve to prop up more of these derivatives uh, that the banks are inflating out to, to uh, just untold trillions. It's ridiculous on its face, and it's uh, supposedly going to be... Uh, going on until such time as employment picks up. So uh, I'm not sure what the mechanism there is between the mortgage-backed securities and uh, the employment rate, but whatever the excuse they're using, it's just uh, seeming to add more fuel to the fire, as it were. What is the, the overall effect of all of this easing going to be? Well, I think if you take the various components of what's been proposed, first of all, you've got Bernanke saying that uh, there will be zero interest rates for the next three years, so I'm sure that for anyone who's a saver or anyone who's living off a pension plan or hoping in the future to live off a pension plan, he's got programmed in his mind that there will never be any income on, on the cash that he is lying in that pension scheme. That's point number one. Uh, as far as the easing is concerned, he's got Operation uh, Twist, which is still ongoing. Operation Twist um, is uh, basically... Um, running out of steam because there are no longer enough bonds that he can actually buy to, to make us debate and switch the situation. Uh, so now they're talking about buying mortgage-backed securities. So what you're talking about is uh, potentially uh, an open-ended purchase rate of about 100, slightly over 100 billion per month going on ad, ad infinitum at the same time as no interest is being paid. And all of this money is going to be stuffing the bank's uh, pockets. They're dumping all of their mortgage-backed securities, which are, as we well know, worth uh, perhaps a few cents on the dollar, uh, in exchange for treasuries, which are pro future promises from the uh, taxpayers of the, the U.S. So all, all this is, it is, has nothing to do with employment, because there's been clear proof that for, for a number of years now, all of the trillions that have been pushed into the system do absolutely nothing whatsoever for employment in the U.S. If you take numbers which are very simple and say, all right, you're running a deficit of, um, let's say, one and a half trillion a year, uh, and then you convert that deficit into actual economic growth, you're seeing a deficit of 10% of the GDP, and you're seeing economic growth of maybe half a percent of 1% of GDP. So the whole thing, all the money is not going where they say it is meant to go. It's got nothing at all to do with with uh, helping employment, although that will be the story that will be told 
uh, for the next 10 years as the outsourcing of jobs from the U.S. to other places continue. It is all about making sure that the banks are given enough money uh, and, and enough uh, rope to not necessarily hang themselves, but uh, basically to save themselves on the back of the taxpayer. It is a very, very, very tragic situation. And in, in essentially, it is no different from what's happening in Europe. Now, if I jump another continent and I look at uh, continent to another country, and I look at Japan, which you'll know a hundred times better than me, they have got, now got 20 years of track record that uh, quantitative easing is a complete failure. And, and even the governor of the central bank at the time, 20 years ago, who, who was talking about uh, <coughs> this at a subsequent uh, banker's pre uh, presentation, said that he, he, it, quantitative easing per se does not work. It is not the solution, and it's like pushing on the, the end of a piece of spaghetti to, to move a bus. What a memorable image, and yet they are still going to attempt to push on that end of spaghetti, even more so in the coming years. And, well, we can see that, uh, at, at any rate, the trend is increasing. There was a, quite a space between the first round of quantitative easing and QE2, a smaller space between QET, QE2 and Operation Twist, between Operation Twist and QE3, and then QE3 and QE4, which was just launched earlier this week. The space is getting smaller. They're, they're having to inject more and more at a quicker and quicker pace. It's almost like it's uns an unsustainable bubble that they're trying to blow up and keep it from popping. Wow, it's almost like exactly what we've been talking about for years. Well, of course, that is the case, and unfortunately, things are only going to increase in 2013, which we'll be talking about on the program tomorrow night. But as a little sneak preview, I'll just point you to an interesting Bloomberg analysis of the latest uh, Japanese election. And it says, Abe shift on BOJ shows Volcker moment may loom in Japan. It says, quote, Japan's incoming Prime Minister Shinzo Abe backed the central bank when it raised interest rates in 2006, a move he now says was a mistake. His shift may signal less tolerance for deflation in the third largest economy. So... Basically, long story short, Japan that's been flirting with quantitative easing for 20 years and then easing off every time uh, it seems there's going to be some inflation is going to go full bore on with the QE right now, starting as early as this week, and markets are responding appropriately. The yen is going to tank, and that's going to increase Japanese exports. It's going to start a currency war. Some interesting things coming for the year ahead. Let's take a short break. Vietnamese in Vietnam, Iraq is in a rocky land. We've bombed them all. White phosphorus and napalm too. Bunker busters, daisy cutters, cruise missiles. Right, welcome back to Welcome back to Corporate Report Radio. Tonight we've been going over some of the biggest stories of 2012 and things that have shaped the world that is uh, through the stories that were. And of course, one of the big repeating stories throughout this year is. Well, the unfortunate mass tragedies that have taken place in the United States, of course, referring to the recent shootings as well as the Batman theater shootings and various other shootings that have taken place in the United States this year. Terrible tragedies, of course, and you may have noticed that I have not commented directly on this latest tragedy, and that is very much purposeful. There's certainly a lot to be said about what's taken place recently in Connecticut, and a lot of it has been said all over the media repeatedly. And uh, it's not necessarily that I 
will draw a, a straight line between the way the media covers events like these and the these types of events taking place. But I think we'd be absolutely naive to think that there is no such line, that there's no way to connect those two things. And just to leave some some of you out there with something to ponder over this tragedy and why it may be important to, at least for a week or two, just to give ourselves a space to breathe before trying to dissect what happened. Let's turn to an interesting story that's broken uh, through Reuters, and it's around the web. You can find it, for example, on Euroweb.com right now. This story, Morgan Freeman denies accusing media of exploiting Sandy Hook tragedy. And it talks about uh, this hoax quote from Morgan Freeman that was posted to Facebook and spread virally on the Internet that, of course, apparently Morgan Freeman is denying ever having stated. But it's an interesting quotation, and it actually, I think, exposes quite a bit of the truth of the situation. This phony statement reads in part, It's because of the way the media reports it. Turn on the news and see how we treat the Batman theater shooter and the Oregon mall shooter like celebrities. Klebold and Harris are, are household names, but do you know the name of a single victim of Columbine? Disturbed people who would otherwise just off themselves in their basement see the news and want to top it by doing something worse and going out in a memorable way. Why a grade school? Why children? Because he'll be remembered as a horrible monster instead of a sad nobody. The hoax statement also takes CNN to task over its use of the phrase body count in relation to the Newtown shootings and said the news coverage would incite more killings. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Of course, there's a lot more to be said about what happened and what took place and where things are going from here. And we will start to cover it a little bit on the program tomorrow night. But I just want to leave a little bit of space in the wake of this to stop with the 24-7 saturation news coverage of these tragedies, the, the tragedy porn that the news media feeds off of, like of vultures and hyenas in the wake of every such incident like this, and which in itself helps to perpetuate this cycle. So I hope for those who didn't catch our rebroadcast with Lauren Coleman uh, last Friday night, about this topic, I hope you will go into the archives to take a listen to it as we explore that idea of how the media and the coverage itself helps to propagate this meme of mass shootings, which is a horrible note to leave things on, but unfortunately the news is not always a happy thing to cover. There are things to be hopeful for for the future. There are bright spots on the horizon. And uh, on that note, I hope once again people will check into my latest podcast episode called Solutions 3D Printing about a really remarkable new technology that has such promise for revolutionary changes in our society in the future. But that's going to be it for tonight. We are fresh out of time. So thank you all for your support tonight and, of course, throughout the year 2012. And, of course, since the birth of the Corbett Report in 2007, I truly couldn't do any of this without you guys out there. So once again, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com signing off for tonight, wishing you all a great night and reminding you, as always, to take care.